This is the big pond. Shh. It's a library. In school, in first grade, second grade, third grade, my class went to the public library, and there were so many books. And sometimes at night, when I was five, six, seven, eight, my father would take out a book and read me to sleep. Bam, bam, And ever after, my life has been one book after another, and one library after another. Old buildings, usually, with trees outside, and real quiet inside. I became a real bookworm, and one day, at my old high school, I went into the school library with its iron stacks and floor after floor of books, old books, really old books. And instead of doing my homework, I took out old books. William Morris's 1800s hand-designed Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. And what else? Oh, anatomical drawings from the 1500s by someone named Vesalius. They were fascinating. I was a bookworm, but not a good student. So just seeing the smile on your face as you recall that, that's probably more memorable than most of the classes you had or most of the other experiences you had in learning. It was something that attracted you, and then you learned something that was unexpected. John Palfrey is the principal of my old high school, Phillips Academy Andover in Massachusetts. And he's written a challenging book titled Bibliotech, Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google. Library stacks are great, says Palfrey, and so is what he calls serendipity, the random encounter with books. We need to keep that in libraries. So I'm a big believer of books and stacks and having that as as part of the experience. I also think we can do that in the digital environment, too. Palfrey walks to his stand-up desk and computer. What are we doing here? I'm going to just show you an image of something called Stack View, which was a technological tool that would allow you to see a stack in a virtual form, which would be much like the experience of walking into the stacks, only this time it's been created with a whole lot of different virtual libraries. Be my eyes. What do you, what do you see? You've looked up Gravity's Rainbow. What do you, what do you now see? Well, I see a big version of Gravity's Rainbow right in the middle of the screen, but then I also see other Thomas Pynchon books to the right and left, as well as criticism of his work. And you can imagine other authors who write things related to him uh, in other ways. And you see sort of an endless way to scroll against the spines of these books. And if you click on them, you would actually pull up that digital version of the book. Well, touch the right-hand arrow, see what happens. It would allow you to scroll endlessly through the holdings of this library, but you can imagine having it be connected to many different libraries. So it just could be an endless wander. It could be an endless wander through the world of books and knowledge, and one that could not be created in physical space. I check out the old Andover library where I wandered the stacks half a century ago, but it's closed now, with tubes coming out the windows. On life support? No, it's undergoing a radical redesign, says Paige Roberts, the library's director of archives and special collections. The primary book 
storage area will be in the basement, which I believe will be focused mostly on history and social science works because those are the most heavily used uh, collection. And then there'll be some books in the library attic as well. Available, accessible? Those will be accessible, but a librarian will have to go and physically pull them. This project does not include an elevator going to the attic. So the collection in terms of books has obviously has expanded significantly in terms of the uh, number of e-books, and the number of paper books has shrunk a bit in the past uh, few years. So the stacks will be a little different, but they will be much more efficient uses of space. Again, John Palfrey. So that you'll still have the serendipity, but you might have to do a little bit of cranking instead of walking through some metal uh, pathways. Stacks, I like to hear that. When I read the promotional material, though, it talked about legacy spaces, which sounds like something you pay extra for on an aircraft. (laughs) There will be some legacy spaces, which is to say some that are most memorable. So two rooms in particular. There's one that was called the Garber Room, which is the old silent study room. That will remain much as it is, sort of a classic library room. There's also a room called the Freeman Room, which had a mural on it, you may recall. Kids now call it the Comfy Chairs Room. That's a room we've used as a place to bring the most important debates of our day, so to bring political issues and so forth for kids to talk about. That will remain our lyceum kind of space. Um, But also we will take some spaces that were stacks, and we will turn some of those into some of the things that kids need, such as group study rooms, and the, the shelving will become compact shelving. So much for an old New England school library. But what about the great mothership of libraries, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.? Space is always a problem there. And behind the scenes, there are stacks and stacks and millions of books, upstairs, downstairs. We're on Deck 13, and uh, when we came in, we passed through Deck 30, which are interconnected. Above us and below us, there are about a half a dozen other sets of stacks just like these. This building was built in 1897, and it was thought at that time it would last basically until the 70s as far as capacity is concerned, but already I think in the 1930s they realized that was way (laughs) over-optimistic. David Morris wends his way to the European Division of the Library of Congress, where he's German Area Specialist. Libraries in America, he says, owe a tip of the hat to one of the giants of 1800s Germany, the founder of the University of Berlin, Wilhelm von Humboldt. Traditionally, the Humboldtian approach to education was, of course, a a real marriage between teaching and research. And also, the status of the natural sciences in a university education, which were always kind of the red-headed stepchild of the academic world until Humboldt really, with his vision of, and especially the vision of his brother, Alexander von Humboldt, thought of science and art and literature and culture as a very unified whole. And that has since informed what we think of as a well-educated person. The idea was that the student should not just be taught a skill to apply to a profession, become a lawyer or something, but that they should be able to think for themselves, become citizens in a sense that would allow them to make informed decisions and um, also to do research that is not necessarily going for a specific 
monetary goal, but that they should be able to freely research whatever they are interested in. At the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., the head librarian is Anna Maria Boss. That required a different type of university. It required less lectures by the professor, more seminars where students would read material, would discuss material, would think for themselves and you know, put their thoughts into words. And that, in turn, had an influence on libraries because it meant that it wasn't enough to have one book for the professor. You had to have large libraries that were accessible for the students and where you potentially had multiple copies of a single book so that students could have access to the books, read the books, discuss the books. And that created a different type of university library, both in Germany and then in the United States, when this concept came over the big pond. From the quiet hush of a research library to the hubbub and energy of public libraries. There are thousands across the country in all kinds of communities, and they're all facing rapid change, demographic and digital. I think in a nutshell, the Internet was a groundbreaking change in the way library services were and are delivered. A lot of people said that that was going to be the doomsday of the library. And despite the word library, kind of the roots of being books, really the purpose of a public library is a evening ground to provide books and other services to the general public, to, to even the playing ground. Maria Harris is a retired librarian who spent 30 years serving in or managing public libraries in Washington, D.C. So even if you never had a computer or you had the most expensive computer in the world, everybody wanted to come to the library to use it. The other thing was that um, I think libraries provide a lot more services now because there were always story times and book groups and things like that. But when computers really kind of exploded, there was hardly any place else you could go to learn how to use a computer. How do you get an email address? The public library fit that bill. I'm not sure where you would go even to pay to go get that sort of training. And that's what that was something that libraries, particularly public libraries, stepped in and provided that as a service. Another crucial function of the public library, says Harris, is supremely low-tech, and that is to be a quiet space and a safe one. Working in a public library, I would always say, it's you literally are one step away from the street. And that's the beautiful thing about public libraries, but also I think is the challenge, because people, the general public, come in with a variety of needs and a variety of different states of mind, and... Um, we have some customers that would stay with us all day for whatever reasons, and sometimes they came when they came to the library, they were in a bad mood, and sometimes that bad mood followed them. And so I tried to set the tone so that we could all have a good day. And the other thing, too, is like I find working with the public is sometimes they people want a sounding board, and that can be a very good thing, and sometimes it can be a not-so-good thing, at least Sometimes it, it, it would create conflict. So I try to set the tone so everything everybody would be nice and calm. Tell me about a surprise that happened to you sometime in all these years. 
The first thing that occurred to me is it actually didn't really involve any humans. We were, we were, uh, we had closed down one of the libraries for renovation, and I came upstairs to the second floor to find a pigeon up on the windowsill, looking a little perplexed, and um, I just started to talk to it, and it started to fly towards me, right to my face, and as if it thought better of it, it landed at my feet. And I realized the poor pigeon had been in there all weekend. And I thought, well, can I shoo them down the steps? Do they do that? And then I said, okay. I decided we would ride the elevator. I don't know why I called him Big Boy. Come on, Big Boy. Come on, Big Boy. And he followed me like a dog. I got on and turned around and faced the door, and the pigeon walked on and turned around and faced the door as well. The doors closed, we rode downstairs, and just nicely, I walked the pigeon right out of the library. Pigeons, the internet, virtual books, time out, time to pause. At the public library in Rockville, Maryland, where on a recent weekend, there was a packed room and a concert. There's a film by German director Wim Wenders called Wings of Desire. In that film, two angels in trench coats descend to earth and simply listen. They're invisible and silent, but they can hear our thoughts. The two angels visit the main public library in Berlin, a vast space, and just listen to people thinking. Libraries are a good place for thinking, says Hugh Kelleher, who went to Harvard and then worked on Capitol Hill in Washington as a speechwriter. But then he switched gears and became a plumber and a writer. Libraries are important to him, as are books. It was a um, English critic, whose name, of course, I can't remember. But uh, the basic idea was that reading should expand the sympathies. And... That's what I look for in a good book. Does it help me understand people? I remember my dad, who was not a reader, he sometimes said, why do you want to read that kind of stuff? It's not even true. This was fiction we were talking about. And about all I could say at the time was, well, it's really interesting. And He wasn't really buying it, but uh, I've decided that uh, he didn't have the right idea, and I did. There's a book by Susan Orlean, and in the book there's some discussion about whether books have a soul, and I sort of wonder what thoughts come to you. Every book does sort of have a spirit. I mean, when you're with it, you are in the company of something that you recognize isn't you, but is speaking to you, is engaging you. Was it Proust who said, we we read 
books to read ourselves. It gives us an opportunity often to improve and expand our awareness of what the world is. And libraries are just, they're magical places. And uh, there's that other saying, uh, where is the will so weak as in a bookstore? Which, you know, the bookstore is like the another version of the library. Hugh Kelleher. Another serious reader is Tom Veblen, the former vice president of the Cargill Corporation. In fact, Veblen is so serious about books and libraries that some years ago he traveled all the way to Egypt to see the pyramids and also what's been called one of the foundations of Western civilization, the Great Library of Alexandria. Of course, the original library disappeared a thousand years ago or so, but there's a modern version now, designed by a Norwegian. So Tom Veblen, who's a proud Minnesota-Norwegian stock, decided to travel 5,000 miles to Alexandria and pay a visit. But when he got to the library, it was closed. What to do? As you know, in most of the Mediterranean countries, money talks. (laughs) And so finally I figured out that our guide was waiting for me to ask what the cost would be probably like $50. And that was the magic key to opening up the library. (laughs) And what does it look like? As you go in the entrance of the library, it slopes down for about seven or eight stories open toward the Mediterranean. So as as you stand in the entrance of the library and you look into the library, you look through a glass ceiling in effect, out to the Mediterranean, and then down to the story after story, or they're really sort of balconies that run down, and there are desks and uh, and tables and chairs, but no books. No books. Obviously, this is a moment of of reflection. So what's the purpose of a library if it isn't to collect books? <laughs> and, and that was my question to the assistant librarian who was showing us through. How can you run a library without books? And he said, of course, this is the electronic age. <laughs> and digitally we can produce everything that's uh, of any significance in literature in the world. And that's exactly what we're going to do. No books in the library. This weighed on me. In fact, when I went back to my old high school and met the head of the school, John Palfrey, I had a dream. And in that dream was Karl Marx, of all people, who wrote most of the Communist Manifesto, Das Kapital, while sitting in the main library in London. But now... Karl Marx was in my ear, and he was saying, There is a spectre haunting libraries. What that spectre is, is the book. Jump off, jump off, make me make a dream. 
Well, that's interesting. I thought the specter haunting libraries was going to be Google or some other technological service that people have been thinking might replace libraries. I think the book is such an integral part of our conception of libraries. I also think it can potentially be a limiting factor when we think about libraries as only about bound books. There's so much more than that. So to the extent that a book is a specter toward libraries, potentially that might be one way in which that's true, which is to say if we only think of libraries as about bound books, that might be problematic. All over America, the world, libraries are racing to digitize. They've got to, says John Palfrey, to stay relevant. Because of Google and smartphones. In other words, you carry around with you a library at all times. Why would I need an actual library? Why should we spend money on this instead of fire and police and education and other good things in our town? And the answer is we should do all of those things. They're crucial public services. I think libraries are more important than ever and more important than we think they are. And I think they're pretty cheap dates in most instances. I don't think they're especially expensive as public services go. So my fear is only that we underrate the value of libraries and that we don't actually believe in them and we don't actually invest in them as much as we need to right now. You, in your book, talk a lot about libraries should become nodes and platforms. And I suddenly had this vision of libraries becoming airports. Nodes, platforms, what is all this? I want to be sure that libraries don't end up as silos or islands, in other words, on their own. I think it's really important for libraries to be interconnected. So in this digital era, if libraries miss the fact that there is power in networks, there's power in platforms, they would be missing something really important. So why is Google so powerful? Why is Facebook so powerful? Why is Netflix and Amazon, why are they so powerful? It's because they've figured out these secrets of the digital age. I just think libraries need to do some of that as well. Libraries tend to follow the trends in technology just like as in society. At the Washington office of the American Library Association, Alan Inouye directs their Office of Public Policy and Government Relations. So back in the day, uh, things big, big technology in libraries included things like uh, photocopier machines, typewriters, microfiche readers, and of course many print magazines and newspapers and books. And, of course, that's changed a lot, or at least I should say maybe it's expanded a lot. A lot of those old technologies, although maybe not so many typewriters anymore, uh, but, you know, print books and magazines and newspapers are certainly still very much very popular. Uh, But there's a lot lot of newer technologies. Uh, And so looking in the years ahead, we expect the artificial intelligence to become a major, even much more significant technology in society, whether it's automated cars, you know, with you know, automated driving or, or what have you. Uh, and so we expect that to also end up in the libraries as well. In some oh, way. you mean oh, driverless cars are going to come into the library? Uh, well, I hope not. Uh, then we don't want to, you know, run, have these cars running into the walls or anything. Uh, but I think more the bringing in the artificial technology into the library. And so right now, you, know, you may well find labs for, like, 3D printers and obviously labs for lots of computers and Internet access. And so that, that might be one of the new dimensions is artificial intelligence laboratories, for example. A final story. Years ago, in a public library, I came across an 1877 book by a famous British aristocrat, James First Viscount Bryce. He was quite a fellow, an academic, jurist, politician, historian, diplomat, and explorer. The book's about his early ascent of Mount Ararat in the Caucasus region of historical Armenia. 
It's supposedly where Noah's Ark came to rest. What's amazing is that Bryce not only climbs Mount Ararat, not an easy thing, but also pauses to describe every plant on the way up, every mineral specimen, and even the clouds. How did he have time to do this? Decades later, Bryce wrote about the Armenian Genocide, and after that, he became the British ambassador to the United States. And a century after that, I happened to spot his mountain book in the public library and take it out many times. It was a real treasure. And I asked the library if I could buy the book. No way, they said. So I gave them my name just in case they decided to <coughs> deacquisition this beautiful old tome. But no such luck. The library closed for remodeling and digitizing, and the book simply vanished, sold off maybe, or just thrown out. Maybe I should have <coughs> deacquisitioned it myself. Once more, Alan Inouye. This kind of pruning has always happened in libraries, and especially in public libraries, uh, because the role of a public library is primarily not uh, preservation. But as you can imagine, some libraries, like the Library of Congress or maybe some of the big university research libraries, that they see their part of their mission as being stewards of the nation's cultural heritage. And so they want to have comprehensive collections of, of whatever. Uh, but most public libraries, like the one down the corner or even your main public library in your city, they don't really see their role as doing that so much. So it's really to support what their residents want in terms of leisure reading, in terms of reading to support uh, improving job skills or people who are in kids in you know, in school or college students or what have you. Uh, and so there is this natural you know, weeding of the shelves that, that, takes, that has always taken place. So I think in recent years that has probably accelerated some, uh, in part because of the need for these new collaborative spaces, uh, to have more computers and Internet access and whatever, you know, that there's less demand for, for some of these old books, especially the ones that are older like this. There is kind of a, a different kind of issue, though, or related issue, especially in the digital age, because with printed books, the libraries have the rights to make this decision that you know we bought this copy of this book, and so we decide how long it's worth keeping in terms of providing service. Uh, but with digital materials, you generally don't have that right because they're all licensed. There's a contract, uh, and so, which governs exactly what you can do with it. Uh, so there is a bigger question in terms of, well, what does it mean to have a collection of digital materials and, and in particular to preserve them uh, or whether you even have the right to do that? In 1837, the great Russian poet Alexander Pushkin died in St. Petersburg, mortally wounded in a duel. He lingered in agony for two days as thousands came to say goodbye. Pushkin lay on a sofa in his apartment in the library, surrounded by books. And towards the end, he waved to them and said, Farewell, my friends. Shh. It's a library. Banjo. Banjo. No, 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 It was the footprints of giant hole. It was the best of times. It was the worst of Where's the book? Where's the book? Where, where, where is the book? The book. For the Big Pond, this is Alex Fellows.
Wunderbar Together. You've been listening to The Big Pond, a series of dialogues between Germans and Americans, coming to you from PRX and the Goethe Institute.